Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. So, Joe, after more than two years, we finally get to hear the voice of special counsel Robert Mueller. And I know White House press secretaries are trained not to answer hypothetical questions. But since you have achieved former status, I'll ask, how different would the landscape be or have been if Mueller had given that exact same statement on March 22nd, the day he submitted his 448 page report rather than on May 29th? I'm of two minds on this, and I think I'm going to come down to it is less important than everybody thinks it is for this reason. I think the Trump base would have gotten to where they are anyway. And while I think Democrats were very frustrated with what the attorney general did and what he perpetrated on the American public, I think everyone is going to get to the same place at the end. This is a contrarian point of view but I actually think, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that this may hurt Trump's position because it brings more mystery to it. It brings there's still a conflict over who's telling the truth and we need to know more. We need to know more as opposed to, OK, now we know it. Let's move on. So I understand why Barr uh, acted the way he did. One of our favorite legal analysts, Ellie Honig on uh, TV this week said as he was sitting next to me, and he was speaking in legal jargon. I thought it was sneaky. And I kind of looked at him and said, boy, I don't, you need to go to law school to call something sneaky. <laughs> um, but I think in the end, um, this will be something that doesn't have an effect or I think actually has a negative effect on uh, Trump because this has kept the mystery of Mueller alive. So the big controversy centers around Mueller's explanation of why his office decided not to make a determination as to whether or not President Trump committed a crime or crimes on obstruction of justice. Let's listen to what Mueller said. The introduction to the volume two of our report explains that decision. It explains that under longstanding department policy, a president cannot be charged with a federal crime while he is in office. That is unconstitutional. Even if the charge is kept under seal and hidden from public view, that too is prohibited. The special counsel's office is part of the Department of Justice, and by regulation, it was bound by that department policy. Charging the president with a crime was therefore not an option we could consider. So Mueller went on to cite the department's written opinion on the subject, saying, quote, the opinion says that the Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing, quote. Now, that's the exact same language Mueller used in his report. The only difference is that last week he spoke them live and on camera. So given all of that, I have really two questions. One, how much, if at all, do those public statements change the political landscape? And what are the odds that this is the last time we see or hear from Bob Mueller on the subject? Well, I think on the first question, it fundamentally changes the landscape. Um, it is a fact that a very small percentage of Americans know what's in the report, have read the report. That was uh, clear. You can go out to anyone on the street and ask them, and they're more influenced by the commentators around the report than what was actually in the report. So having Special Counsel Mueller come down from the mount with his tablets uh, and actually read it fundamentally changes and animates the report. People aren't going to read it. Uh, and there were you know, a, a number of Trump supporters on television last night saying things like, Wait a second. I thought they he was exonerated completely. That's in, that's news to me that he hasn't. You know, clearly they've been watching Fox News, uh, not CNN or MSNBC or reading the New York Times. We're going to see him again. I, I think the special counsel um, is sincere in wanting to go away. Um, I think that he does not want to be part of a spectacle that a hearing will be without a doubt. Uh, but I think he owes it to the American public. Um, this was a very important issue that he looked into. Uh, and we should talk a little bit more about, you know, the Russia aspect and the interference. Uh, but there are questions and there are legitimate questions and they're not part of the partisan back and forth. 
And I think he has an obligation to go before Congress uh, in an open setting with, with the cameras rolling. Uh, and I think he is someone who takes obligations seriously. And I think he'll ask to be compelled to be subpoenaed. But I think he will show up and I think he will answer. And when he says he'll answer within the confines of the report, even if he does that, that will be another earthquake as far as the landscape is concerned, because that will bring to life much more of the report than the nine minutes that he provided. As you pointed out, we should talk more about the Russian interference. And in fact, during his press conference, Robert Mueller began and ended with Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election, which is the subject of our interview today. So let's listen to what Robert Mueller had to say about that. Let me begin where the appointment order begins, and that is interference in the 2016 presidential election. As alleged by the grand jury in an indictment, Russian intelligence officers who were part of the Russian military launched a concerted attack on our political system. The indictment alleges that they used sophisticated cyber techniques to hack into computers and networks used by the Clinton campaign. They stole private information and then released that information through fake online identities and through the organization WikiLeaks. The releases were designed and timed to interfere with our election and to damage a presidential candidate. And at the same time as the grand jury alleged in a separate indictment, a private Russian entity engaged in a social media operation where Russian citizens posed as Americans in order to influence an an election. And I will close by reiterating the central allegation of our indictments that there were multiple systematic efforts to interfere in our election. And that allegation deserves the attention of every American. Now, in an interesting twist by tweet, of course, President Trump weighed in last week saying he was not guilty of any crimes because, quote, I had nothing to do with Russia helping me to get elected, quote. How significant is that apparent admission by Donald Trump? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think every once in a while the truth slips out of his mouth. And boy, did he get out to the South Lawn fast enough to say, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. I don't think Donald Trump has uh, any sense internally that anyone helped him. Uh, I think the Mueller report and the coverage around it reminds people the very simple fact, which he asked for the Russian help. He publicly said, please help us. He had his son go meet with the Russians. Uh, He got the help. And it had an impact. And Professor Kathleen Jameson Hall does a wonderful job of explaining the imp- the actual impact uh, in, in the election. And, I, and I'll leave that to her. Listen, I think the first, the second to last and last paragraph might have been the most important. The first and the last had to do with the Russia interference. He's making a very profound point that our democracy is under attack, that our national security is at risk. And every American read The president of the United States should acknowledge this and should be doing everything they can to prevent it from happening again. And in a not so subtle way, I think he sent the message that the president hasn't acknowledged this, which he hasn't. He's taken Vladimir Putin's word on the fact that the Russians weren't responsible for this. Uh, And he's not doing what he needs to do to protect this democracy going forward. Uh, And I think that's what Mueller wanted us to focus on. The second to last paragraph has to do with the staff, the lawyers, the FBI investigators, the professionals who spent the last two years of their life trying to get at the Russian interference question that have been maligned, accused of all sorts of high crimes. These are Uh, the 18 angry Democrats? These are the so-called 18 angry Democrats. These are FBI agents. These are people who are great public servants, and to quote Bob Mueller, people of the highest integrity, who the president has attacked, who the attorney general um, has attacked in talking about spying and, you know, potential coups um, uh, within our government. And I think in addition to supporting those people, I think Special Counsel Mueller was issuing a not-too-veiled threat uh, to the Attorney General, to the President of the United States, to the Republican Party, which is he's willing to go away and let Congress handle this and not be part of this anymore. But he's not going to leave you know, his troops in the field to fend for themselves. 
This is a guy who, if pushed, will I think will push back, not to defend himself. I think he will. He doesn't care. He can handle the president uh, criticizing him. He can handle Bill Barr putting words in his mouth. That that's not going to keep him up at night. But when people start going after his people and start trying to destroy their reputations and talk about them as traitors to this country who should be put to death, uh, you know, as as the president uh, has said, I think there'll be pushback. This is something the president and the Republican right should think long and hard about. It sounds great to investigate the investigators, but the last thing they want is for Mueller to feel compelled to put himself back in the center of this stage. He definitely has a proven track record of going back to protect the troops. I believe that's what earned him the Bronze Star. Indeed. So as we heard from Robert Mueller last week, the allegation of Russian interference deserves the attention of every American and it has gotten particular attention and focus from Professor Kathleen Jameson, who we have on today to learn the ins and outs and the intricacies of the cyber war and attack on this country. Listen, there's been a lot of political debate about Russia's influence, what it had on the election. There's a, you know, a lot of partisan back and forth on cable TV. Uh, Kathleen is an expert. She went and looked at the data. This is someone who's written 15 books. This is an academic study and probably the most thorough one that has been done to date on just what the impact was uh, in the election. Not was their conclusion, not is it the president telling the truth, but did the Russians turn this election for Donald Trump? And people should listen, uh, you know, to, to her. And I think by the time you finish listening, you're going to run out want to buy her book. Joe and I are honored to welcome our next guest to the show. Kathleen Hall Jameson is the Elizabeth Ware Packard Professor of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School for Communication, the director of the Annenberg Public Policy Center, and program director of the Annenberg Retreat at Sunnylands. Professor Jameson has authored or co-authored 16 books, and her most recent title is Cyber War, How Russian Hackers and Trolls Helped Elect a President. Professor Jameson, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Professor Jameson, I'm going to do what some authors hate, but I, I'm going to go like to the back page of the book and start at the back and ask you a simple question. Did the concerted Russian effort across all fronts, and we'll get into each of the fronts that you talk about in your book, did it turn the election? Did it push it one way or the other? And I'm asking in the context of as a political operative, I've looked at this and been highly suspicious, but had no data. to. So it was an argument between me and my Republican friends. You've actually dug into this the way you have on so many other subjects. How would you answer that question? The answer to the question is that it probably did, but we don't have the evidence to say that it certainly did. And the level of certainty of the various answers differs. So first we've got the trolls in cyberspace. They're pretending to be us. And the we have a theory of the election underlying their messaging that suggests that they were pretty smart. They were targeting the voters that Trump needed to mobilize, demobilize, and shift. They had enough messaging out there, and the messaging was well calibrated. It was consistent with Trump's messages, in other words. So they weren't so much supplementing as they were amplifying. But what we don't know is, did they reach the right voters in the right swing states? So the case there is iffy. It's a might have been, but we don't really know. Hacker's case, much stronger. Because there, the impact is able to be seen all over the media agenda. Mainstream news altered its media agenda in response to hack content. In particular— And when, when you say the hackers, you mean the, the DNC emails, the mm -hmm. John Podesta emails? Mm -hmm. Russian operatives hacked the Democrats and then released through three front groups. Ultimately, WikiLeaks is the one that has the greatest impact. And in the process, at one key moment, if you remember the Access Hollywood tape, which— introduced new vulgarities into the news stream and raised questions for reporters about should we use those words in print? Some did, some didn't. On that day, you had the confirmation from our intelligence services that the Russians had hacked. Not that they were trying to help Trump or hurt Clinton, just something that they'd hacked. Then the Access Hollywood tape breaks and the Washington Post story that accompanied it. And within an hour, the Podesta hacked content is dropped into the media stream. That of itself created a change that was dramatic. Now, you've been a political operative for a long time. Think about the news agenda on that Friday. You've got the Russians did it, 
and Access Hollywood. Going into that weekend, that Sunday, and those two things happen on Friday, that Sunday is the second debate, October 9th. The news agenda would have been dramatically anti-Trump. The Russians did it. Why did they do it? Why did they do it? What do we know? What's the disadvantage for you know, Hillary Clinton? What's the advantage for Trump? And then secondly, Access Hollywood, is this campaign going to survive? We know from the Woodward book that there was talk in the Republican high command about the possibility that they would simply try to move Trump off the top of the ticket, move Pence up, move Condi Rice in as the VP nominee. It was that serious. Into that environment, what the hack content did was counterbalance the news narrative. So now there was a problem for Trump and a problem for Clinton. And the news reporters largely talked about in tactical terms, what would their campaigns do? Would the Trump campaign survive? How would Clinton cope? Not did the Russians do the hacking. We lost the Russians. As a result, we lost the sourcing and changed the news agenda in a way that may have saved the Trump's candidacy. And we lost the moral and character argument that Access Hollywood raised, and it became a political tactical argument over Mm -hmm. which of these things hurt the candidacy more, something that Donald Trump had said and which I think reflected his values or something that was hacked by the Russians, stolen, and dumped on the Democrats in order to hurt Hillary Clinton and help Donald Trump. And so one of the questions you ask when you look at just that weekend is, had the hacked content not been released, what would the effects have been? Now, you've got a counterfactual. Basically, you're saying, well, what if? But what I can tell you what happened is the news agenda was different than it otherwise would have been. And I can tell you as well, as can all the other scholars who've looked at it, that in the intervening days between that October 7th first release and the election, the news agenda was tilted against Hillary Clinton in ways it would not have been had it not been for the regular release of the content. So among other things, the Access Hollywood story pretty much disappeared from news, but that regular release kept it in public awareness. So there's an effect there, and changes in media agenda change what we think about when we vote. People think when they think about voting, they're thinking about everything, but they're not. They're thinking about a limited number of considerations. And if I can make one more salient and it hurts Hillary Clinton, I increase the likelihood that's there when you think about voting. And remember in this election, three things were true. We had more independence than usual. That means they're less anchored to party. We had high disaffection with both candidates. That means if you can increase the negative is about one, you're giving a default vote. Basically, I'm going to vote against that person even though I don't like them both. And as a result, coming into Election Day, we had a high number of undecideds in those last weeks in which all that Russian content is making some difference in news. So higher likelihood we could actually persuade people. And then in that environment, we have early voting, which means across that month, 45 million ballots are cast while those streams are in there potentially influencing. Did that make a difference? More than probably. You're now moving toward it's getting pretty likely. And then finally, you've got the possibility that James Comey made public his decision by telling Congress that he was reopening the Clinton email investigation uh, because there may have been Russian disinformation sitting in the background that he was afraid would be released and would discredit the Justice Department and because he thought Hillary Clinton was going to be elected might discredit her as president. Let me ask one other broad question, which you I think you've answered a little bit, but I, would, I want to put it to you, and then I want to uh, turn it over to Katie. What was it about 2016 that made the cyber attacks and the Russian attacks so effective? We know that other countries have, have attacked our system, have tried to interfere before, but I'm not aware of a time where that interference was so effective and so pervasive. What was it about what was going on here at home that made this one such a difference maker? The Russians got lucky. The highly polarized environment, lots of divisions already at play. They didn't create them. They exploited them. And when you exploit those divisions and you increase the sense that we're at odds against each other, that anxiety works against the incumbent party and the incumbent party's heir apparent, Hillary Clinton. So some people argue, well, the Russians were just trying to sow discord for much of this. And they were for much of this trying to sow discord. But who's advantaged and disadvantaged by the sowing of discord is a really important question. My assumption is it's the incumbent party. Why were they able to do what they were able to do? The platforms were sitting ducks. The platforms weren't set up to handle political content. They were set up to sell us to advertisers. And as a result, they aggregate like-minded people in groups in which you can amplify content really readily. We know negative content shares more rapidly. It's also more persuasive. And that's why we see so much more attack than we see per dollar spent in politics. 
But we also know that they had targeting capacities that were set up to help advertisers reach us that didn't require that you know a lot about how to reach an electorate. So go back to when you started in politics, and there were time buyers. Now we're going way back here. And those time buyers had they had the mysteries of the art. And we would spend— The GRPs. The GRPs and the micro-targeting. Yeah. And we would look at spreadsheet after spreadsheet after elections, bewildered by the ways in which they would say, and this is how we found— the housewife who was the soccer mom in 96 that we were trying to swing by targeting radio into these areas of Pennsylvania. Yeah, swing one and swing two voters. That was the 96. That was the nomenclature then. Exactly The the swing two, they were the ones we really had to have. But you needed high levels of expertise to do that. And, you know, as an academic on the back end trying to make sense of this, I would spend hours with these people wondering whether this was actually an art form or it was all hocus pocus, but they did appear to move votes. Well, now the Russians in St. Petersburg, thanks to the platforms, can, through the targeting structures, pick a number of categories and basically figure out how to reach audiences in a way that my 13-year-old grandson could target and get me. So the capacities were there in a way that they weren't before, and the Russians exploited them. On the hacking front, Our press, which in many ways does a good job, was just really susceptible to the release of stuff that had been hidden before because the press loves leaks, and leaks are often good because they hold people in power accountable. But when a candidate decides not to make something public, such as speeches, and her opposing candidate spends a lot of time saying, I'd like to see those speeches, and the implication is there is something to hide. What are you really telling Goldman Sachs? And suddenly the speech segments are there. Well, the press wasn't as critical as it should have been about asking, what did they really say? Was she really saying one thing in public and another in private? She wasn't, by the way, at least on the topics that were focal to the press. And also to suggest that there was a scandal in the revelation. And so the press tendency to think that what's hidden is hidden for a good reason, and there is a reason to think that people are hiding things for a good reason, played into a narrative that made the press very susceptible to not being critical And they ignored largely the fact that Russians were behind it. They didn't credit the sourcing to Julian Assange or the Russians. That violates a real journalistic norm. They didn't say they hadn't independently verified, in part because they'd been looking for these speeches all along, and this other content seemed to them to be genuine. And the Clinton campaign never established any of it was inaccurate. I want to ask about the precision of the attack in the cyber war, and I want to do it with some historical context, which is usually Joe's role, but sometimes I can bring some in. So at a gridiron dinner in 1960, then-Senator and presidential candidate John F. Kennedy addressed the issue of his father's wealth and his campaign by saying, quote, For those of you concerned that I'm trying to buy this election with my father's money, I just received a telegram from him. Dear Jack, don't buy one vote more than necessary. I'll be damned if I'm paying for a landslide. Now, in 2016, with a margin of 77,774 votes in three states, the Russians didn't pay for a landslide. Was that luck or was that operational precision? Well, first, the Russians didn't pay much. They put about 100000 into advertising. And that yields a conclusion that is actually mistaken because people say, well, with that little money, they couldn't have had any effect. Well, that bought content. That's not where the troll effect is. The troll effect is in in the content that was organic. It's the stuff that just went viral. It's the social media content. So the question, you know, is what's the equivalent going back to the Kennedy analogy? And the equivalent going back to the Kennedy analogy is Kennedy had to buy time in battleground states trying to target Catholics with the half-hour recut of his speech to the Houston ministers to try to mobilize the Catholics who, remember, weren't necessarily a reliable Democratic vote. Kennedy told people in his campaign that they were actually trying to blunt Protestant bigotry. No, they weren't. They were micro-targeting to try to mobilize Catholics. And in the process, they bought advertising, both radio and television, targeted to reach those audiences. We have a trail on that. I actually went back and found the time by records. That's why I can tell you this. And that's why I know they weren't telling the truth when they said they were trying to target Protestants. 
So now, how do we track the equivalent when there aren't any time by records when everything's organic? It becomes a whole lot more difficult. But the platforms actually know who was reached with this content. And I hope that the Senate Intelligence Committee has gotten access to that information and is going to tell us that because they had the power to get it. The platforms have no self-incentive to tell us whether they know the answer to the question, but we know that they know it. But we're going to have to get it through those means, not through anything that is a public record. And it's possible that their theory of the of the election was sound, but that they didn't have the capacity Kennedy had to reach those Catholics because they couldn't get the viral content, the organic posts targeted. They can't. Basically, you're just throwing it into cyberspace, hoping that your appeals are going to resonate with the right audiences that are going to share within those communities in sufficient numbers to create the effect. In the hacking area, now we've got a different theory. And the analogy there would be if Kennedy had substantially been able to control the news agenda and Nixon hadn't, because that's basically what hacking did. It altered the news agenda. And we've had instances in which one candidate did control the news agenda, which is how I can say I'm pretty confident that when you change the news agenda, you get effects. And those who are old enough will remember 2000. In the last week of 2000, we still had major broadcast networks that were offering candidates interview time in broadcast news. And they offered the time to Bush and they offered the time to Gore. And Bush had just been put in a difficult situation because a DUI conviction from his distant past had just been revealed. And so in that last week, Gore took all the invitations and Bush only took one of them. And what that meant was Bush was afraid he was going to be asked about DUI. He didn't want to reset the agenda on DUI. He took the trade-off of greater access for Gore rather than the risk of DUI interrogation. But it meant that Gore could hammer on one key argument throughout that last week across the nation, because that's what broadcast news does. It reaches the nation. This isn't micro-targeting. This is targeting the nation. And Gore kept saying, as he'd said in the third debate, Bush is going to shortchange Social Security. He's going to take money out for his private Social Security accounts, his personal savings accounts. And as a result, there's not going to be enough money, as much money as there otherwise would be. That's going to shortchange seniors. Now, what that means is we could actually study to see what happens when one person is able to get a lot more of the media agenda. And I was in the field with a survey every single day, a fresh random sample every single day. It's called rolling cross-sectional analysis in academic terms. And we could watch day after day as that argument got traction, particularly among those who are high consumers of broadcast news. What does that say? You get an imbalance in the news agenda. You shift votes on the margin. And in a book that I wrote with Richard Johnston and Michael Hagan called The 2000 Election and Foundations of Party Politics, we show in gruesome detail that, in fact, that's what happened, and it explains why Gore won the popular vote. Been in a session with Karl Rove who said the last week cost him 4 million, cost Bush 4 million votes, that there were 4 million voters that didn't necessarily vote for Gore but stayed home. I'll give you a similar and more painful example because I wasn't in the Gore campaign, but the month of August in 1988 with uh, Governor Michael Dukakis, where Governor Dukakis every summer did what he called state days, where he went around the state for the entire month. So he won the nomination, had a nice trip coming out of it, and then went to Springfield, Massachusetts, Worcester, Massachusetts. Vice President Bush at the time used the entire month to hammer him every single day on an issue And the governor chose not to respond because he said, quite simply, voters see through attacks like these. And you had what you accurately described as an imbalance in the news agenda. On August 1st, maybe July 15th, Governor Dukakis had a 17-point lead in the polls. By Labor Day, he was down by 10. So this, what you're talking about, is very real and was very much a part of what happened in 2016. You talk about the role that American journalists played both in the book and, and, and just now, and I was struck by how even questions in the debate were framed to be on message with the Kremlin's messaging and were anti-Hillary Clinton. So, and taking in Joe's point about 1988 and, and the news being able to drive votes on the margin, are we setting ourselves up for the same thing all over again in 2020, or are the elements of political journalism that were contributing to furthering the the Russian cyber war in 2016 still here? Have we evolved? Are we even aware of it enough to change it? The press response to its role in 2016 is worrisome. 
The platforms have made changes. We have changes the secretaries of state are making to try to protect our electoral infrastructure. The government has responded with sanctions. The cybersecurity structures within the government are now trying to gear up aggressively. There's been very little self-reflection on the part of the press, which actually created the effect of the hackers. If the hack content had been dropped and not used extensively in news, it wouldn't have accomplished anything. What it would have accomplished was hand the Republicans some material they could have used. But that's very different than material being legitimized by the press and then used by one campaign or the other. And my concern is that in the rush of the campaign, when reporters had way too much to do, they were deluged with content. So there's a wonderful piece by the AP that describes what it was like in newsrooms to try to deal with not a few pieces of information, but thousands, thousands of pieces of information. And what that meant in terms of having to redesignate a time of reporters, what it meant in terms of trying to figure out what actually was newsworthy. So it was a high-stress environment, which mistakes were likely to be made. And in that environment, mistakes were made. Material was taken out of context. And you're referencing, too, the statement by Hillary Clinton in the hacked speech segments that says that she favors having a public and private position is a statement about Steven Spielberg's film about Lincoln. It is not a confession that she's telling the banks one thing and she's telling the public another. The statement that says that she said she supported open trade and open borders did not have a period at the end of it. It said sometime in the future, it's in the context of a hemispheric common market, and it's talking about energy transfer across borders. When the press adopted the WikiLeaks frame of it, they were actually also adopting the private frame of the Clinton internal campaign memo. And here's what's insidious about this. And, Joe, you know this because you've been in campaigns. When people are talking back and forth to each other in campaigns, they're telegraphing. They're speaking in short bursts where there's a whole lot of material assumed in those kinds of conversations. And when you and your role as someone who's working with the press says to the candidate and to the campaign, this can be taken out of context. We need to worry about these things. And you're flagging them. You're not saying this is legitimately taken out of context. You're saying we got to worry about this. Well, the Clinton campaign memo that has the speech hacked content attached to it is a memo by a research person speaking to the high command saying we should worry about these things in these speech segments because they could be taken out of context. Open trade, open borders could be taken out of context. Public-private statement could be taken out of context. As a result, the research person puts in headlines with asterisks around them what it would look like out of context. WikiLeaks promotes the out-of-context version. The press, in the rush to deal with everything they've got, inadvertently accepts that frame. And they did so, I believe, in part because when they read through the hacked segments as released, they saw these asterisks and assumed that was a legitimate way to frame the rest of the content. I don't think reporters of the quality of those who made this mistake actually went through and read carefully to get the context. And I think in some cases, staff were asked to go go get that. We know what it is. The narrative's really clear. Put it up on screen, and it just nobody looked then carefully in the process of putting it on screen because a period appeared where it didn't appear, although it did appear inside that internal memo where open trade, open borders actually has a period in it to demonstrate what it would look like when it's out of, t- out of context. So does that change Journalism 101 classes? I was a journalism major. The first thing you learn, the basic foundational principle, of course, be first and be accurate, more importantly. And it's a basic principle. Are we reinventing the wheel here? We weren't taught in the context of the onslaught of information and leaks and, and hacked information that, that occurred in the 2016 election. So do we need to reteach basic principles of journalism? Is it something new and different? How do we get better between now and 2020? Well, first, I think it's important that people in newsrooms go back and ask, what did we do right and wrong in 2016? And then ask, confronted with exactly the same situation, would we have done something that's different? Because it's it's very different for a news organization to say, well, yeah, we sourced it to Russians once. Now we don't have to ever do it again. We'll just cite it as WikiLeaks. Or say, no, we weren't as good as we should have been about keeping the WikiLeaks content tied to a Russian source. It's very different to say, I'm really proud of our journalism, and to say, oops, we took those things out of context. So self-examination, I think, is really important here. Because you're right, journalistic norms were violated. And you can specify what the norms are. Accuracy is a norm. Being contextual is a norm. 
sourcing your content is a norm, indicating you haven't independently corroborated all norms that were violated and violated by our best reporters. So I'm hoping that if it happens again, they will have learned the lesson, and because they are good reporters, they will be more likely to honor the norm, even if they are confronted with a situation in which there's way too much to cover under very difficult circumstances. And I'll add one thing to your list. In an environment where there's a fear that if you don't get it out there, somebody else will. Right. My experience with the media, which by nature of my age is <laughs> is long, <laughs> is self-reflection is just not something that they spend a lot of time on. And the ability to do self-reflection in the crazy environment that Donald Trump has created makes it that much harder. And that the First Amendment gets bandied around as a shield for both the good things that it defends and some of the bad things that it shouldn't defend. You talk a little bit about how in other countries the the Russian influence, whether it be hacking, whether it be trolling, was not effective, and why, France being one of them. Talk a little bit about that. We have a First Amendment, which I cherish, which is very important, and it keeps government away from speech. But other countries don't have the same kinds of First Amendment protections. So when hacked content was released in France, right before the Macron election, there was an agency that was empowered to say to the press, if anything you put out there is false, you will be held accountable. Well, we're not going to say that here. It did, however, effectively change the press agenda. That is, they covered the fact of the hacking, they sourced the hacking, but didn't cover the hacked content. So some of the solutions that are available in other places shouldn't be solutions inside our structure. But it seems that somewhere in between those two things may be the answer, which is here in the United States, we only covered the content and didn't cover it that well. In in France, they were able to clamp down and make the story that the Russians got this information and everyone like didn't even worry about how interesting that information was. How does the government, and I'll broaden this a little bit because we, we've only touched on the platforms, how do we regulate the platforms? How do we incentivize the media because we're not going to regulate it because of uh, the norms and the First Amendment? But how do we bring these players together to, I think as Katie was getting at, not redo 2016? The platforms have been subject to a great deal of scrutiny because of the various congressional hearings, and they see regulation in the offing, and as a result are engaging in forms of self-regulation that are potentially very productive. And so, for example, the Russians could in 2016 buy ads into platform structures, and they actually in one case were able to pay in rubles. At a certain point, you should say, hmm, rubles, that's probably not a U.S. national. Now, in order to place an ad, you have to demonstrate that you're in the United States by having either a business account number or a social security number, and there's a a tag back system where you have to send something back. So the likelihood that that's going to happen again is very, very small. Now, you can imagine the Russians or the Iranians or the Chinese could still put somebody in, in a locale, but they'd have to work awfully hard to do it, and they'd probably get caught. That disclosure means you're less likely to be influenced because we judge sources, we judge message. Now, those are all productive changes. The platforms are now making possible, particularly Facebook, access to all of the other advertising by a player, and they're archiving the advertising so that you can find it. They also are letting you see who's trying to manipulate you. That is, what's the pattern underlying they're identifying you. If someone cares to check, that increases the likelihood that they're going to be wary. So the question is, can we increase the likelihood that people want to check to find out who's trying to manipulate them? And can we increase the likelihood that content that shouldn't be here stays out? And can we increase the likelihood that when it comes in legitimately, as RT does, into our cable systems, that we know it's it's the gremlin? All things that are already on the table with the press, the question is going to be how to increase the likelihood that the press takes a deep breath and is more careful next time. And I'm worried, given the lack of self-reflection, but also given the tendency of humans to defend their own activities and to find some reason to think that theirs was just fine or justified and it's someone else's problem, that that's the place we've got the vulnerability right now. Although I think our press is going to be a lot more careful the next time around. Have you seen evidence that people will want to check in this era of 
seeking out the journalism that you want to hear or quote journalism that you want to hear. In this era of MSNBC and Fox News and Echo Chamber, cable news networks, do you see evidence of people wanting to check and people wanting to further investigate where they're getting their information and who's producing it and what it's coming from? So my question is, both journalists and receivers of the information, consumers of the information, is there evidence that they will want to check? Well, first, we're not all alike on all topics all the time. So we're more likely to check things that disconfirm what we believe than what confirm what we believe. And that's true of all of us. So again, it's easy to say, no, everybody else has that tendency, but I, of course, am highly wary. Well, we know we're not. We know that our ideology traps us into being uncritical about things we're disposed to believe and highly critical of things that run counter. How do you overcome that? Well, you increase the likelihood that the topics people are talking about are salient to them, and you forewarn them that manipulation exists in the environment. What we know about deceptive content, and I founded factcheck.org with Brooks Jackson, so we've been on this for a long time and worrying about how do you get people to absorb content that they really don't want to absorb. They really don't want to believe that this was incorrect, even though I accepted it. And what we know from our work there and also from work that I've done in other capacities as a researcher is that if you can warn people about the likelihood of deception, about something they care about, they will become more wary and somewhat more wary about things that are part of their own side's argument. Not as wary as the other side, but somewhat more. So forewarning helps. Pointing out how they've been deceived in the past by a source, and this is as a result of source that shouldn't be trusted. Not that one shouldn't trust everyone on the other side, but that this source has had problematic content. Particularly problematic content that might have had bad consequences for you increases wariness. And the likelihood that you're exposed to corrections so the correction isn't only there once, but you hear it again and again and again, increases acceptance of it, even among people who weren't disposed to accept it to begin with. So there is some hope. Also, There's some optimism. Also, I like that. Some of us are harder partisans than others. We're way over our, on our end of the ideological spectrum. Well, those are the least likely to be open to the possibility of being more wary. But most of the electorate isn't actually there. We think that they are. We talk as if they are. But most people aren't what I call hard partisans. Most people fall into a leaning position. They're kind of on one side or kind of on the other. And not particularly engaged. And not particularly engaged. And that's the second point. And so to the extent that you are talking to those individuals, your likelihood of using forewarning and correction on things they care about, your, your likelihood of success is much higher. Are you going to ever break through the hard partisan disposition to defend and counter argue? Probably not. But can you affect those people who fall into that vast middle ground as they become more attentive because they're caring more about your issue? Yes, you can. I, I don't want to leave our listeners with the impression that there's nothing we can do with the media. You know, the Washington Post has now documented over 10,000 lies or misleading statements. And he often does it on live television. The lie gets out there and, you know, maybe the truth catches up, maybe it doesn't. And I believe that live putting anyone on television, particularly the president, is an agreement, an in-principle agreement that the person who goes on will do their best to tell the truth and will endeavor to tell the truth. And in return, they get the exposure of live television. Well, I think the cable networks are long past the time where the president has proven he hasn't kept up his part of that bargain and that he should not be put on live. And he should be checked before he goes on and be given a 15 or 30 minute grace period while they can check so that they don't broadcast things that they know not to be true. Or at least they can warn people, as you were saying beforehand, the president is about to speak to you on the, in these areas. He is not telling the truth. I don't think it impacts the First Amendment because there's nothing in the First Amendment that says the president's words have to be on live. The First Amendment says they shouldn't be censored. I don't think we are helpless. I just think we're too passive. I think we've lost a sense of how we determine what's newsworthy in an era in which a president is unprecedentedly accessible and also engaging in forms of communication that are inherently entertaining and conflict-driven, which increases the likelihood there's going to be an audience for them. I think what we need to ask is, under what circumstances is what the president is going to say sufficiently newsworthy that the presumption is a presumption of access. 
And under what circumstances should we wait and see what he said and after the fact determine whether or not we're going to put it on? Because presidents do have an enormous amount of power and press watching and being account- holding that person accountable for the exercise of that power is an important press function. But I would differ with you in the way I would cast the, the language that one is concerned about. I worry about use of wor- the word lie when we don't know intention. I, I would be very comfortable saying I'm very concerned about things that don't comport with discernible reality. But when you say that someone's lying, you assume they knew what they were doing and they're intentionally deceiving. And I think there's an alternative hypothesis in some cases, which is the person is ignorant. Now, you could say culpably ignorant. You could also say self-deluded. But nonetheless, what's important is not the intention. It is whether the public is potentially deceived about it. And then I'd add a second thing, a second criterion. And is it consequential? So one of the things we face with factcheck.org is you can't possibly police everything out there that's wrong. And I've been trying to increase the likelihood that we ask the question before we post something, is this worth correcting? Is this decept- does this decept- deception matter? Because at some level, there are thousands of things that you can say are wrong and they don't make any difference, but there are one or two that really do. And my definition of consequential is, does this affect policy in some way that affects people's lives? So if a president says or a candidate says, if you like your plan, your insurance plan, you'll be able to keep it, and we know you won't because he's working through a private insurance structure, that's consequential, and it deserves a lot of press attention. If someone says there are weapons of mass destruction, the press should be saying, how do you know that? What is the evidence for that? There's a real press failure to hold the Bush administration accountable for producing the evidence. Well, that got us into a war. And that's potentially problematic. So I think we can make distinctions. And I think we can ask if the person believes that's true. And sometimes it's highly problematic if they actually believe it as opposed to they're just spinning. If you say the unemployment rate is 42%, you have different policies that you address 42% unemployment with than if you think it's 4%. So if he actually believes that and he acts consistent with that in his policymaking, he could actually do damage to the economy. So determining what the importance of it is and how important it is to get it corrected, and then explaining why it's consequential is, I think, something journalists have lost track of in the rush to catch every time someone gets something wrong. Your point is well taken that it's it's a good filter, especially these days, to ask, is it consequential first? But what about aggregation? What about the aggregation of lies or the aggregation of contradictions to discernible reality using your language? Isn't that in and of itself consequential? It, it's important to know whether candidates are are speaking and acting in a way that's consistent with discernible reality, in part because that speaks to their capacity to govern, and it speaks to their character, and it speaks to their temperament. I'm not suggesting that it's unimportant to note those things, but rather that if you treat every one of those things as if it is equally important, you're missing the fact that in people's very difficult, busy lives, they have to determine what matters to them and doesn't. And sometimes being informed about what's accurate or not accurate about one of those really matters. And about the rest, you're simply making a judgment about character, temperament, or capacity to govern, which has a role inside campaigning, but I don't think should be a preoccupation of day-to-day journalism about someone who already holds the office. Well, now I want to come take your class. (laughs) Um, I want to go back to Joe's original point and touch on one thing from the book before, before we let you go. We know, you say in the book, we can't know for certain if the cyber war changed the outcome of the 2016 election. But what about who did it? Can we be certain about how high up this went within the Russian government? Those are two different questions. Um, I think one of the things that's, that's interesting about talking about levels of certainty is most of our life, we make most of our decisions based on far less than certain evidence. So right now what we have is a confirmation from our intelligence agencies that the Russians did it, and there's no dissent inside our intelligence agencies. Secondly, we have the platforms tracking this material back to Russian computers. So there is a second independent form of corroboration. Um, And third, you have Pulitzer-hungry reporters who, if it wasn't Russia, probably would have figured that out by now and as a result would have told us that. My presumption is, yes, Russia did it, Roger Stone to the contrary. But... We do not, with that same level of confirmation and certainty, know that Putin personally directed it. There's an inference that says, given the way Russia operates, the likelihood that this was approved at the top and that it could not have happened were it not is what we're dealing with. I'm perfectly comfortable saying it's highly likely that Putin approved of this, but there's a difference in the level of certainty. 
what I put at the beginning of the book were some quotes that include some quotes from Vladimir Putin. I think he's having a lot of fun with us. He's hinted broadly that the Russians actually did it, even as he's denied it. He suggested at one point, and I love this moment because a reporter asked a two-part question. And Putin, in the answer to the question, might have been answering one part, might have been answering the other part, depending on what you think he was answering. Now, that depending on whether you think he understands English. In other words, if he understands English in the question, we know he's answering both of them. He either admitted that they were deliberately trying to do this in order to elect Donald Trump, or he didn't admit that at that point. So the question becomes, when listening to Vladimir Putin, who's a KGB agent, when do you trust him? When do you, when do you not? And it's a little like doing a three-dimensional puzzle. And my assumption is there's very little about Vladimir Putin in public that has said that he hasn't thought out carefully. And I think he's got somewhat amount to confessions in the public record that say, yeah, I knew, yeah, I did it, and yeah, I got away with it. If Vladimir Putin had drawn up a plan to disrupt American politics, to punish Hillary Clinton, to sow dissent in the United States, this plan, even given his genius as an intelligence operative, could not have worked better than <laughs> it, it, it has. And Vladimir Putin, even though he does not rule in a democracy, has internal politics and taking credit internally in Russia for what he's done in the United States is incredibly important to him. So, I, yes, I think he understands the question. I think he's done. Uh, he's run circles around our president and has, and has made it pretty clear. I, I want to finish with just a broader question because your expertise goes far beyond the Russia issue and very much into, you know, the problem of journalism, the problem of politics. How do you view the problem of Fox News in this country? And I'm going to let you answer that any way you want. Yeah. I mean, the problem with questions about Fox News is there isn't one Fox News. There are multiple Fox Newses. Chris Wallace is an extraordinarily strong interviewer. He has held Republicans and Democrats accountable in ways that are consequential. If Fox News were to disappear and as a result he was off the air and he's worked with other networks, so maybe someone would immediately pick him up, but that would be a real loss. Brett Baer has an hour in the evening, take the ads out, so less than an hour, that covers international affairs and covers national security in ways that are different, and he covers them more than the half-hour newscasts do, in part because they're a half-hour, but in part because they've created a beat structure around those that matters. I wouldn't want to lose that hour. I think Shepard Smith, Brett Baer, Chris Wallace are, in my category, traditional journalists acting traditionally. All humans have some point of view, and you see that reflected, but nonetheless. Then you've got Hannity and Carlson over on the other end. Now, that's straight polemics. Nothing wrong with straight polemics. I wouldn't call it news. It's essentially a different network. And to the extent that those stay distinct, I'm uncomfortable answering questions about Fox News because they're both there. And then you've got the third thing, which is Fox and Friends, which has its own niche because it essentially is listened to by the president of the United States. And as a result, it appears to have a capacity to shape policy that is very unusual. But it means that you do need to watch them, particularly as an academic or somebody who's the policy, because you want to see what the sources are for some of the statements the president makes, particularly statements that seem to be informationally challenged. Again, that's a different function than the sheer polemics of Carlson and of, of Hannity or the news function that's over on the other end. Hence, I'm actually not trying to dodge your question. I find Fox News valuable in some respects, interesting in others. And on one end, you know, it, it's simply a surrogate for a whole kind of the way in which politics operates on, on the fringes of the of political dialogue. Are you comfortable with the synergy between the president and the Fox network, whether it be talking to Hannity every night after his show or his relationship with, you know, Steve Ducey and whatever, whoever else is on Fox and Friends and the way it's hard to figure sometimes who's running who? What I don't know is, and you were in those venues, I was not. I don't know who the equivalents were in presidents who didn't demonstrate in public space that they were being influenced by these individuals. I enjoyed watching Sean Hannity coach Donald Trump in how to debate by answering questions with him in a town hall format because I got to see it in public. I, would it be different if it happened in private and I didn't see it? If the Fox and Friends kind of exchange happened in private and I didn't see it? I don't think so. It's just I wouldn't be able to watch it. So, you know, unless there is a channel of influence that occurs because of that synergy, 
I actually think there's some benefit in being able to watch it. At least as an academic, it's an interesting thing for me to be able to see. In my next life, I'm going to be an academic so because it'll lower my frustration level. <laughs> One final question. The book uh, came out before we got a copy of the redacted Mueller report. What have you learned or what's changed? The book said there was no need for coordination between the Trump campaign and the Russians in order to accomplish the objectives I saw accomplished inside the book. The targeting capacities of the platforms and their nature made it possible for the trolls to do their work without coordination. The fact that the hackers stole the complete Clinton playbook meant that they had what they needed in order to figure out what they needed to do from other sources. And our media's tactical focus means that they're very good at making us into campaign consultants and telling us where you need to go to do what in what state. And I quote at some length in the book evidence that was perfectly available to people in St. Petersburg that tells you where you have to go in Florida to do what, where you have to go in Pennsylvania to do what, where the Democrats and Republicans are actually doing what they're doing. So for all of those reasons, the Russians didn't need to coordinate. So the book was agnostic on whether it was occurred, but it had occurred, but it argued that it didn't have to, to have everything that the book said transpire. transpire. So, so, so your, your modification of Trump's talking point is no collusion necessary. And it was from the beginning. But secondly, the Mueller report has done something that's incredibly important because, remember, this isn't the first Mueller report. You have the Mueller troll indictment, you have the Mueller hacking indictment, and then you have the final Mueller report. And we know that the Russians did it because of the level of specificity in those indictments. So at the level, at that level of detail, we are not reading a fantasy. We are reading something that transpired. There's a credibility behind the fact of the Russian intervention documented by Robert Mueller. And there's news in the last report. There's evidence that the Russians, through D.C. leaks, one of the first two front groups they established, Guccifer II was the other, this is pre-WikiLeaks, had reached out to give advance copy of hacked content to reporters. I'd like to see those reporters stand up now because they're anonymous and their, their, their identity is camouflaged in the Mueller report. I'd like to see them stand up and tell us what was it like to be manipulated by Russians and how could we make sure next time that this doesn't happen again? I'm really curious about who are they. The Mueller final report says July, September, there's that kind of contact. Come on, fess up reporters. Secondly, we found out that Florida was penetrated. The Florida election system was penetrated in a way that we didn't know before. We knew that Illinois was. But now we know there's a vulnerability in Florida. We don't know which counties yet. In an odd set of exchanges, apparently the people in Florida haven't been told that they can tell us which counties they were because they had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Well, I would like to have every reporter in the country down looking at those counties to make sure that they're adequately protected. Next time, we should find out what those counties are. FBI, could you please tell us that? Um, so, you know, there's important information there as well. So there were things that we learned from the report that I thought were potentially consequential. And then the last was that there was sharing potentially, this is secondary, a secondary source in the Mueller report, of the fact that Minnesota was in play for the Trump campaign. And here you've got the possibility that there was coordination. That's why Minnesota is of interest to me. Because by stealing the Democratic playbook, they wouldn't have seen that Democrats thought Minnesota was at play. The Democrats didn't think it was. The Trump people did. We saw Trump going to Minnesota before the election was happening. I looked at that and said, what do they know? Or are they just gaming this to try to lure Clinton in? Well, it turns out, no, it was unexpectedly close. And what Mueller report confirms, the final Mueller report is that there may have been a pass-through from Manafort to a Russian contact, Kalimnik, that indicated Minnesota was at play as well. And the trolls were active in Minnesota. And I could never explain why. Well, there's my little piece, different from what I said in the book before, that says, hmm, if there was going to be coordination on that one, I can't explain it from having the Democratic playbook and all that press access to tactical coverage because the press was never spe speculating. Minnesota was open. Well, let me thank you for both Katie and I. If you're interested in politics, go out and buy Cyber War, How Russian Hackers and Trolls Helped Elect a President, What We Don't, Can't, and Do Know. Give yourself a lot of time because if you're really interested in politics, you're going to want to go back and read 15 other books uh, that <laughs> oh, you've thank read. You. Right. And let me do the ultimate validation, I think, of, of your work and how important it is. You know, we've talked on occasion over the last 20 years after campaigns, and it's fascinating to be in the middle of a campaign and 
be part of every big decision, have the campaign be over and either come to one of your forums or read one of your books and have that aha moment where you realize, oh, so that's what happened was happening that day. <laughs> and I can't tell you how many times that's happened where you just can, you know, because of your ability to go in and, and, and dissect the campaign and take some of the emotion out of it, really connect dots that even people in the middle of it don't. So I highly recommend this book. But uh, if, you, if you're a political historian, go back and read the others because they are, in addition to great reads, they, they really do capture what's going on in politics. And we don't, we don't capture enough of it. We tend to make it up each cycle and, and make the same mistakes over and over again. So thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.